0: Welcome to the Barrier Breakdown Disrupting Mental Health Podcast, where we talk about the clinical and practical issues that face those working in the mental health industry. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us on the Barrier Breakdown Disrupting Mental Health. My name is Erin mullin Bailey. I am the Chief Operating Officer at Cognitive Behavior Institute. And along with me today is my co-host, Dr. Kevin Caridad, who is the CEO and owner of Cognitive Behavior Institute. On this week's episode, we have with us Dr. Kyan Connor, who is a clinical social worker by profession and an associate professor of mental health law and policy at the University of South Florida and the College of Behavioral and Community Sciences. She recently completed her term as the vice president for the National Alliance on Men- Mental Illness for the state of Florida and is a board member for the National Stigma Reduction Organization. This is my brave. Dr. Connor's research examines behavioral health disparities facing racial and ethnic minority populations and develops and evaluates evidence-based and culturally meaningful approaches to address those disparities in access and outcomes for these populations. She has received over $2 million to support her research in this area and has more than 45 publications that speak to the impact of her work. So Dr. Connor, thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, Could you begin on letting our listeners as well as us know what led you to focus on researching behavioral health disparities for racial and ethnic minorities?
1: Yes, absolutely. And I just want to thank you both for allowing me to be here and to talk with you guys today. It's sort of interesting um, how I came to be a researcher in this area, because if I'm honest, originally I had no interest in research at at all. Um, I wanted to be a clinician. Um, I always knew that I wanted to work with individuals who were living with mental illness. Um, Some of that stemmed from my own family circumstances and having some family members who lived with mental illness. And um, I originally thought that I wanted to be a psychiatrist um, and then (laughs) realized I had a little bit of an aversion to blood and had to kind of pivot and sort of went into psychology instead. Um, got my bachelor's in psychology, a master's in social work, became licensed and went right into the field and started working. Um, I've worked in a range of different mental health centers, both community-based as well as private practice, uh, and really loved what I did. Uh, I think for myself, being a member of the black community, one of the things that sort of interested me initially and wanting to focus even my work as a clinician on the black population and communities of color Um, was that growing up in our household and in the households of people around me, we didn't talk a whole lot about mental health. It was something that almost seemed kind of taboo or, or something that was meant to be discussed inside your house, but not something that you talked to outside people about. And so when I became a clinician, I really wanted to try to add to the population of therapists of color, hoping that that would make a difference, knowing that that was important, knowing that we needed to have more people of color in the profession, um, especially for individuals who may have a preference of talking to someone who looks like them, um, who might be from their community. But when I got into the field, I noticed that there still were not very many people of color coming into therapy, um, that when people of color started treatment, they tended to terminate treatment prematurely, which was you know, concerning as a clinician. Um, but also I began to be concerned about some of our diagnostic measurements and tools and strategies, wondering if they were truly culturally sensitive, wondering if we were missing the mark in not really understanding the context of culture, um, of historical trauma, of race-based trauma, and how that might be impacting on the mental health of clients. And in some of the settings where I worked, it was just not something that clinicians talked about or, or addressed. Um, So it was at that time that I began talking to some of my professors and asking questions and they said, well, you should do studies on this. And I thought, well, you know, I'm not interested in research. That's not what I do. Um, But actually it was the the dean of my school, social work at the time, Larry David, um, who said, well, you know, who better than you to ask these questions? And that kind of resonated with me. And it was at that point that I went back to school and got my PhD in social work got another master's degree in public health with a specialization in minority health and health disparities, and did a two-year postdoc in community psychiatry at the University of Pittsburgh um, School of Medicine, where I really got to train with some of the top-notch researchers in the field um, to understand approaches to community-based mental health research. And that sort of led me on this path um, that I'm on now, which is exciting for me because personally and professionally, the work that I do is important. I get to feel like I'm making a difference in the lives of others um, and I'm able to touch even more people than I was before as a clinician.
0: Absolutely, so what can you tell us and our listeners about This Is My Brave?
1: Yeah, so this is a really exciting project um, that we're working on right now. And um, This Is My Brave, the national organization actually is a nonprofit group started out of um, Washington Washington, DC, co-founded by Jennifer Marshall. And that organization has a mission to end the stigma surrounding mental illness. Um, So we know that stigma continues to be one of the most significant deterrents creating barriers to access for service utilization for in you know, all individuals. Um, and This Is My Brave provides a creative platform for individuals who have an experience with mental illness or an addictive disorder um, to share their personal stories of what that experience was like, um, if they've gone into treatment, if they're going through a process of recovery, what that looks like. Um, and just sharing stories of hope and optimism there. So these stories cover many forms of mental illness, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, anorexia, bulimia, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, Um, and people share their stories through creative means. So sometimes that's comedy, spoken word, essay, poetry, an original song. And these stories really create new opportunities for participants and audiences to talk about mental illness and to talk about health. Um, this Is My Brave's uh, original program has been performed in 34 cities across the United States and Australia, featuring nearly and 825 storytellers and about six seventy unique productions. Um, and so before COVID, these productions were done in person. So This Is My Brave would travel from city to city and recruit individuals in that community to share their stories to a live audience. Um, Since COVID, this has had to be transitioned to a virtual format, which has had its challenges, um, but also additional opportunities where we're able to reach a much broader section of of the population. Mm -hmm. We have done research on This Is My Brave, and some of these preliminary studies have shown that it is a very effective strategy for reducing public stigma, impacting beliefs about recovery and mental illness, improving attitudes towards treatment seeking, and having an impact on discrimination reduction um, uh, faced by individuals who are living with mental illness. But until now, um, with our project, This Is My Brave Stories from the Black Community, um, there has not been a targeted effort from This Is My Brave to address specifically the issues of shame, stigma, and cultural values and historical trauma and current experiences of racism in the Black community uh, via this powerful program. And that's really what This Is My Brave stories from the Black community is all about. Uh, Interestingly, this project kind of came about uh, because uh, Jennifer Marshall, the co-founder of This Is My Brave put out a really beautiful anti-racism message over the summer um, when the protest for Black Lives Matter kind of erupted after the murder of George Floyd. I saw that message and I was very compelled by it um, because a lot of organizations put out messages, but they seemed superficial um, and this one seemed really genuine. And I I reached out to her and and we began a conversation around, wouldn't it be powerful to really target a This Is My Brave episode or series of episodes to stories from the Black community? We know now that about one in five American adults face mental health issues, but the conversation around mental illness continues to carry stigma and shame. And many people who deal with mental health concerns remain silent. And this can be particularly true in racial and ethnic minority communities where talking about mental illness is often, as I said, seen as taboo. And there are often cultural norms that encourage individuals and families to keep mental health challenges private frequently leading to people not seeking help when they truly need it, and then isolating those in our community who need help the most. And in the Black community, there's a strong need to address this issue, especially right now, in a time when the world is grappling with its legacy of historical trauma, its long-standing history of systematic racism, protests against police brutality, what happened at the Capitol last week. Right now, critical conversations regarding the mental health and wellness of African-Americans are being brought to the surface, um, providing us with This Is My Brave an opportunity to really change the narrative around mental health in the Black community. So in an effort to take advantage of this type sort of unique time in our history, We're partnering with This Is My Brave to deliver and evaluate this special series, This Is My Brave Stories from the Black Community, to really shine a light on and amplify the voices of Black Americans living with mental illness or addictive disorders who are willing to bravely share their experiences with the goal of reducing stigma and encouraging others uh, to share their stories as
2: well. Can you talk more about some of the stories that are being told in particularly contemporary times as you talked about last week in this summer, 2020 has been very, uh, I I think it's highlighted nothing new what has already been going on. It's just been coming to the consciousness maybe of more uh, of a a part of society that wasn't being impacted. And so can you speak more about that and kind of going into 2021, kind of some concerns as well as maybe some hope that you see uh, moving forward?
1: That's a really great point. Um, You know, one of the things that we emphasize in these stories that we're wanting to to share here um, is that for many of the African-Americans who are living with mental health concerns, um, those experiences and those symptoms are exacerbated by current race-based trauma that they're experiencing, as well as historical traumas that are impacting upon them either directly Um, or indirectly through stories from their families, experiences of their grandparents and parents and loved ones, these vicarious experiences that we're having now that are more frequent due to the rise of technology. For example, you know, when we see these things happening on social media, there's all, you know, almost every day there seems to be something new to be outraged about on social media. Um, But it's become such a huge part of our life that as we're witnessing and viewing these things happening to others, Um, It has an impact on us in ways that we may not fully understand. Um, We're seeing a rise in mental illness in in all of our populations, but as a clinician, I'm gonna speak directly about African-Americans. We're seeing a rise in mental illness. We're seeing a a distinct rise in suicide um, and suicide ideology among African-American teens and youth. And this is a very new trend that, you know, suicide was something that we weren't seeing Um, as an issue specifically in the African-American community a couple decades ago, and that is now becoming a concern. And, you know, through talking with um, individuals who are currently living with mental health concerns, we're seeing that what's happening in the United States um, is having a direct impact on the health and mental health of communities of color. People are scared Um, People are feeling like they're living in a country where uh, an overwhelming majority may not want them to be here. Um, People are seeing that, uh, for example, our law enforcement um, may be treating groups with one shade of skin complexion differently than another. And that leads to concerns, that leads to increased stress. And we know that stress has a huge impact on our health and mental health. And for someone who is already living with a mental health or addictive disorder, it's compound, it compounds um, in addition to living in COVID and being isolated from our family and from our friends and from the things that we would maybe normally do um, to impact and boost our emotional state. So I think that all of these things have really had a significant impact um, on all of our communities, but in particular on the Black community. I am hopeful, however, you mentioned hope and optimism. I think if there's a silver lining, it is that all of these things have forced us to have these conversations that we're having right now. And I'm seeing more amazing, uplifting, um, focused conversations about changing the trajectory of what's happening now than I probably ever have before. And that provides me with some hope about where we're going um, and that we can move past this, but it's going to take some work, and it's going to take a collective effort on, on all of our, our parts to do that.
2: From a clinical perspective, uh, as you described, the, the increased demand has been tremendous. Uh, one, I think, the barriers, as I see, is is that there's not enough clinicians of color, so if you could speak to individuals like myself who see Patients of of color, and what would be helpful? One or two things that we could take away, at least in this podcast, to keep in mind when we're trying to do the best we can for the individuals sitting in front of us. Uh, Any advice you can give would be appreciated.
1: Absolutely. I think that's a great point. You know, uh, one of the things I talk to my clinical students about, because it's always a question I get is, Um, can I do effective clinical work if I don't match the race of or the ethnicity of the person that's sitting across from me or sitting next to me in a clinical session? And the answer is unequivocally, yes, you can. Most of the research that I've seen does not actually suggest that racial match between a clinician and a client is necessary to provide a good clinical intervention. However, some research does suggest that clients tend to rate Uh, the rapport or the relationship with their provider as higher when that person matches their race or ethnicity. And what I gain from that is just an idea of comfort. And I think all of us sort of experience that. If I I could give a just quick tangential example, um, if I walk into a classroom that's full of men and I see one woman sitting uh, in the room, I'm likely to go and sit next to her. Um, We may have absolutely nothing in common, but at least initially, I see maybe this person understands me. Maybe this person is someone that I might be able to relate to uh, due to this shared characteristic. Um, And I may feel more comfortable initially going and sitting next to her. I think all of us may have a little bit of that inside of us wanting to connect. And especially from communities that have been disenfranchised, perhaps feeling that someone from outside of their group may not fully understand them. Um, you know, that can be d- due to current situations or their current experiences, but also due to fear and mistrust because of the relationship that people of color have had with our health system. You know, examples like Tuskegee and Henrietta Lacks, and these things are not super far from our mind, right? We still think about those things and has created some mistrust um, that has to be dealt with. So as a therapist, I think that clinicians who are working with individuals who are outside of their race or ethnicity need to feel comfortable putting that on the table. Um, You know, saying to a client that I recognize that there may be some differences um, between your life experiences and mine, um, and that I may not always fully understand some of those things, but expressing a genuine interest in wanting to understand and wanting to connect and providing an opportunity for that client to share any of those potential concerns they have so that it becomes a conversation. And I think that that can really help to increase rapport and and, and enhance a relationship that a client has with a clinician. Um, I think that we can always tell when someone is being genuine and expressing a genuine interest in wanting to get to know us. Um, And I think that's a big mistake that some clinicians make is that being afraid to broach that conversation in the first place. And I think that when we as clinicians are comfortable talking about something, then the client is comfortable talking about that as well. And we can have that conversation and work together then to build a much more collaborative relationship going forward.
0: That was very helpful um, for our our listeners who, um, as they are with their clients, um, finding a lot of those challenges, I'm sure. In your research and in your work, has anything surprised you um, that maybe you weren't expecting or, you know, something interesting along the lines of your research that maybe you'd like to share?
1: I don't know uh, if I would say it was completely surprising, um, but one, I I guess I'll mention uh, this issue of race-based trauma. Um, It's something I've been studying a little bit more recently as I've been sort of diving into some more diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings that I've been doing for organizations and corporations across the the United States and wanting to really help connect the dots. And one of the things I found in one of the research projects that I did as I was sort of sorting through data and material um, was that even though we recognize that race-based trauma has a significant impact on individuals, on our clients, it's something that is almost never assessed in clinical interactions. And there was actually a study done on the dsm 4 and I don't know, they'll have to redo this now on the, on the dsm 5 although I don't think we'll find too much difference, um, that issues uh, surrounding sort of stress and um, uh, risk factors um, for symptoms rarely ever mentioned issues of discrimination, race-based trauma, prejudice. So we know that these things are important, but are we doing a good job of actually assessing for those things in clinical interactions? And do clinicians know how to address those things in clinical settings? Um, And I think that that's really important, especially now. Um, Oftentimes I hear clinicians and students saying, and, and agreed, I think it's coming from a really positive place, saying things like, I don't see color. I want to look at everyone and I just see a human being. And that is a very beautiful notion, but it's actually incredibly damaging Um, because if you don't see someone's color, you're not seeing a huge part of who they are, their identity, um, something that has likely a huge impact on how they see themselves and how they see the world and the way that they are interacting with the world around them. Um, So I think that as clinicians, we have to do a better job of understanding how individuals, race, culture, and ethnicity are impacting upon their their life context, how they're living their lives, how they're moving through the world, Um, and having an understanding of how certain experiences that may be racially based, experiences of prejudice, discrimination, being treated differently, um, being worried about interactions with law enforcement, um, mothers of young black children having to have conversations with their children about how to stay alive when they go outside. This is something I deal with. I have three black sons and this summer was an incredibly emotional time for me. Um, I can remember a situation when I was standing outside in my driveway with my three boys and a police car drove by with their sirens on and my children ran and hid. It was heartbreaking. I have a 12 year old, uh, an eight year old and a five year old and my young boys ran and hid because of the messages that they'd been seeing um, through their peers and through social media, they were afraid. And so I found myself having to have conversations with my children that I never expected to have. And it had an impact on me emotionally in ways that I couldn't fully articulate even as a clinician. Um, So I think in clinical settings, Um, we have to have those conversations with our clients. We can't pretend that these things that are happening around us are not having an impact on them. Um, And we have to make sure that we're creating a bridge for those conversations to be had in those kind of safe spaces. Um, And that despite our differences in race and ethnicity, um, that that we're comfortable having those conversations. So those are just a few of the things that have really sort of been memorable and and, and poignant to me this year.
0: Wow, that's very impactful. So thank you for sharing that. Um, So the first episode that launches today, uh, January 18th, which is challenging the stigma of mental illness through This Is My Brave stories from the black community. Where can our listeners get more information about
1: that? Absolutely. So you can register to uh, film the first episode of the series Um, that's airing tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on thisismybrave.org. It is completely free to the public. We would love for as many people to be able to watch this show as possible. And we are having a live um, interaction post the the viewing um, with our cast so that individuals um, who have viewed the episode are able to have a conversation with cast members, ask them more personal questions. There will be clinicians on those calls as well to really aid in providing some additional support um, for anyone who might be on that, that call with us. Um, And our second airing will be on Monday, February 1st, in honor of the first day of Black History Month, also at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, with our second group of cast members. And again, we will be having a live Q&A with the cast um, immediately following. Uh, I've seen the preliminary cuts of the the show. I'm so excited to see this air. Um, They're incredibly powerful stories filled with poetry and song, there's some West African dancing and drumming that's involved as well. Um, So I think that people are really gonna gain a lot from from watching clinicians as well as the general public. Um, I think we'll all be able to gain something really beautiful and powerful from these stories.
0: Wow, that's wonderful. Um, I know that we definitely want to stay in touch with you so that we can continue to hear um, the progress of the episodes, um, as well as further things to come through this project. So thank you so much for being here with us and sharing all of this uh, wonderful information regarding both the projects and the research um, that you have done and continue to do. So we thank you so much for taking the time to join us here today. Thank
1: you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. And thank you everyone for joining us on this week's episode of The Barrier Breakdown. As always, you can find us on social media, on YouTube, as well as Facebook under the page CBI Center for Education, uh, as well as Instagram at Cognitive Behavior Institute. You'll find all of our podcasts on the Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean, where we do encourage you to like and leave comments and subscribe on our YouTube channel. Additionally, you can find us on our website at www.cbicenterforeducation.com, where we have low-cost, robust continuing education credits in our mission to further the clinical efficacy of behavioral health clinicians. So thank you so much, Dr. Connor and Dr. Caridad, for joining us here today. And we will see everyone next time on the Barrier Breakdown. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Barrier Breakdown, disrupting mental health podcast. Check out our website at CBRcenterforeducation.com for more information and to learn about upcoming continuing education events.